0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So I think it was um, either early or mid-July... 1980. I had been on staff um, at Worcester called First Brethren Church at that time and um, I was bringing my time there to a conclusion. While I was there as the associate pastor um, and the senior pastor was uh, Dr. Pastor Ken Ashman and uh, he allowed me to speak once a month on Sunday night. And so that was my uh, speaking thing. Of course, I had all my youth ministries and other Bible studies and Sunday school classes and stuff, which was really good. But I was drawing my time there to a conclusion. And so he asked, gave me permission to speak the last Sunday morning that I was going to be there. And of course, um, if you don't know Dr. Ashman, Um, He was the ultimate control freak. I thought I was, but he was way beyond that. And and so, and we did a lot of promotion. We printed thousands, millions of things and handed them out. And so he needed a sermon title. So my sermon title for that last Sunday that I was there was, A Great Man, A, A Great Leader Says Goodbye. That was my sermon. And he didn't talk to me that whole week Um, and so we got in there and I get up on that Sunday morning and I'm ready to speak and I start by just saying today uh, is the last Sunday I'm going to be speaking here and I chose for my title a great leader says goodbye and then I said and I want you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy and I took him to the latter chapters and I'm gonna to explain to you when Moses transferred leadership to Joshua. And I'm like, well, what did you think I was speaking about? <laughs> and um, so it was fun, that was a fun thing. I'm not doing that today. And um, I did have a really close friend of mine in ministry uh, in Pennsylvania, a real dear friend of Ann and ours, um, who, I didn't know, but last Sunday was his last Sunday. And so uh, our fellowship promoted his message and put it forward, and I thought, oh, i got to watch this. And um, it was 50 minutes long. So I promised the leader of our ministry out there in Indiana and one of us here, I promised mine won't be 50 minutes long. So so you're off the hook on that. And actually, what we're going to do today is just fit into the series. comes up today that I'm on second Samuel chapter 12 Uh, these things were by God's design not by mine or pastor Clark Um, so we're following up on what we spoke about last week and last week we looked at the horrid story of King David's lust and his resulting actions now we all know that these things have consequences That story, if you remember, and I know everybody knows it, it it involves the wife of a faithful soldier, a soldier named Uriah, and a woman, his wife was named Bathsheba. And one evening, beautiful night, that um, King David was out strolling along his um, palace rooftop, uh, ended up in a passionate encounter between David and Uriah's wife Bathsheba which resulted in a new life being born. So as soon as I did that, I think I put the uh, clicker down there and didn't bring it with me. So, oh well. Because I wanted to tell you, sorry about leaving the screen, whoever's watching on the computer, but I wanted to tell you, this is the process. We talked about this last week. David saw, he wanted, he took, and then he hid or covered it up. And that's the process that David used, and it's the process that you and I use every single time we approach something that's sinful. Hopefully we stop at the he saw part, or she saw part. But he wanted it, he took it, and he hid, and that's what we do too. We do do that. We'll see something, wow, that's great. Should I have it or not? Well, maybe not, but boy, it just looks so good. I really think I want this and then I participate in it. And then, then it's like, okay, now comes the big hard part, that's to cover it up. So last week, I think I suggested to you that um, David came up with a plan. And his plan, number one, which was the only plan he wanted to use, was he was going to send for Uriah, and Uriah's going to come back and report about the battle. They're out at war, and Joab's leading it, and Uriah's one of the top officers, and yeah, so send him back. He can give me an update on what's going on. And, uh, and then while he's here, he can spend a night with his wife. Natural things happen, and, and a little bit later, when a baby's born, everything's covered. They just suspect that it was Uriah that night, and, and that's all good. Problem was... Uriah was extremely loyal, dedicated, faithful soldier, and he just could not bring himself to go home and be in a comfortable home, sleeping with his wife, when he knew his fellow soldiers were all out on the battlefield, sleeping in tents and, and fighting and going through tough times. So he, instead of doing that, he just stayed in the streets and slept there, and he didn't go anywhere near Bathsheba. That's a problem. So we need plan two. So plan two comes, the next day David finds out, so he invites Uriah to come to the palace, and uh, you know, I know you're supposed to go back to the field today, but come on in, I wanna spend some more time, I wanna get more information, tell me what's going on, some more, give me all the details, and let's have a a banquet together. And he gets Uriah drunk. And uh, and that's a good thing, because we all know that that goes heavily with, excessive sexual activity and so, so yeah, that sounds like a good idea and you know he's going to go home and be with his wife and, but he doesn't. He's, this time he decides to sleep right there on the palace steps, right outside of David's. So that's really rubbing it in, it's like not only is he not doing what I want him to do, he's flaunting it right in front of me. Now we need plan three and plan three is going to be the clincher. Uh, He sends him to the front line. He gives him a letter, a scroll, to give to um, Joab, and it has the instructions in it that when when you're in battle, send Uriah to the very front of the lines, the hottest, most dangerous place, and at some point, withdraw the troops so that he's there all alone, he's gonna get slaughtered, and that'll be great, and that's exactly what he did. So Uriah was his own death pronouncement carried it and gave it to King Joab without knowing any of that. And of course, uh, that happens and Uriah gets killed. So, end of the problem. I think the last verse of chapter 11, we looked at that very last phrase that just simply says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You really think? Of course it did. It displeased him a lot. Why? Because um, God takes our lives very serious, and how we live our lives, and what we do in our lives, and, and all the things that come into us. David had a pattern of violating in this one area. Um, now, he was great in everything else, a man after God's own heart. He was wonderful, but he violated. If you remember, uh, in Deuteronomy, it tells about what kings are supposed to do. Don't multiply armies. Don't don't increase your livestock, don't build a fortune for yourself, and don't take on many wives, and David did. We looked at that last week about all the different wives he married and all the concubines and things. And this is what God says that's really important for us today in the year 2021, if that's what it still is when you're watching. It says this, marriage should be honored by all. That includes the king, the queen, the prince, the princess, the prime minister, the premier, the president, the vice president, it should be honored by all, no exceptions, because it is a sacred thing. And the marriage bed kept pure. God's plan is a man and a woman to come together after marrying, after that commitment, and be together, and they can enjoy that for the rest of their lives I'm going to suggest that probably the greatest thing in life and And you probably need to talk to people who've been through it and are in their 80s 90s and the hundreds But the greatest thing in life is for a man and a woman To find each other and be best friends for their entire life and experience everything together That's just the best thing ever for anybody. There's nothing that can match that It's got to be pure, or else God will judge the adulterers or in all sexually immoral, and it doesn't matter if you're the king or whoever you are, God is going to judge that. David probably wished he had known that verse before he got too involved in some of the things he got involved in. So we come to chapter 12, and we all know the phrase, time heals all wounds, right? And I'm going to say that's not true all the time. Um, Here's an exception to that. It's almost a year later, almost. And David has successfully hidden and covered up what he had done. So he's not getting a whole lot of um, uh, inquiries about what he had done. There's not an investigation being thrown by Congress or anything like that. But it takes a bold man to confront something like that. This is something that, this is the king who has the power of life and death over everybody in the kingdom. And God sends a bold man, his name's Nathan, to face this powerful, uh, successful, popular king. So here's what verses one through four say. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children and it shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Wow, isn't that great? And here's what happens next. David abruptly interrupts the middle of the story that Nathan's telling. And here's what he says, verses 5 and 6. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. His anger was greatly aroused. His sense of justice just rose within him. And he replies to Nathan and says, this guy is gonna repay four times over for that. Now that actually was accurate. Because in Exodus chapter 22, verse one, it tells you that when somebody kills somebody else's um, livestock like that, there's a couple things, ox and sheep and things that it lists but for sheep it was you have to repay it four times the problem is David went just a little bit further and said and that man deserves to die here's David responding to a a great story but he responds with no sense of pity in fact he exaggerates the response because Exodus 22 never said that you need to die You don't die. That's not a capital offense. You need to replace many times over, depending on the livestock that you took. David exaggerated it. And it was easy for David to see the injustice. But in condemning the offender, he condemned himself and didn't even know it. David was so self-deceived that he didn't understand that he was actually pronouncing judgment on himself. Look what Nathan says in the very beginning of verse seven. Nathan says to David, in his very best King James Version voice, he said, thou art the man. I know, NIV says you are the guy. Um, But thou art the man is what he said. Can you imagine, and I think you can, can you imagine the shock that that was David had thought that the darkness and the privacy of what he was doing and the power and the privilege that he had could conceal his sin and no one was going to discover it. No one would know about Bathsheba. No one other than Joab would know about Uriah, or at least he thought. The problem is darkness does not conceal from God. You may hide it from the closest people to you. They may not have a clue what you're thinking, what you're doing, but God does. And God knows exactly what's going on. And in verse 13, David finally says, I have sinned against the Lord. Last week, we looked at the passage in Psalm 51, where it said, against you and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Psalm 51, four. I find that to be an interesting statement because I think some people could argue against that. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, David, you're telling God that my sin was against you and you alone, you only. What about Bathsheba? Wasn't that a sin and violation of her? What about Uriah? What did he do to deserve being set up? His wife was ripped from him, and then he was murdered. What about the future family? Uh, this is going to play out for a long time to come. What about Joab? He was put in a situation where he had to kill off one of his officers because the general or the king said so. And the troops of Israel—they now have a leader who has greatly tainted himself and all the people of Israel. They have let sin come into the camp. This has been very, very dangerous for them. It's important for us to remember that sin is much more than doing wrong to other people. And it and it is that. Bathsheba was injured by this. Uriah was killed by it. Joab was affected. All those other things were affected. But sin goes way deeper than that. Because first of all, sin is always an offense against God. Rebellion, it's always against God. We had Dan read Psalm 32, and and what a great Psalm that is as well. Because David's remorse ended up making him a broken man. He, um, He may have been hiding all this stuff uh, maybe nobody knew what was going on in his heart and mind, and maybe just a handful of people were aware of the Bathsheba thing and the, and the baby that was produced. But David tells us in Psalm 32 that he went through not just uh, emotional trauma, he actually experienced physical trauma as a result of his sin. He said, my bones were aching, my body, it was a as if the heat of summer exhausted me. Uh, he really went through it because of the conviction of sin. Have you ever been convicted of sin to that degree? Have you ever faced the sin? I, I was going to ask you earlier, have you ever had a situation, and some probably have, and maybe, hopefully you haven't had to, did you ever have somebody come and say to you, thou art the man or thou art the woman? Because you messed up. You did something really bad. That's a horrible experience. But it could be a good experience. And in Psalm 32, he talks about my sin haunted me so much. I was under so much conviction that I was literally struggling health-wise. I was battling everything. The whole world was black to me. Yeah, it looked like everybody, you know, I was able to hide this successfully from everybody else, but not from God. And so he comes, and and repents from this sin. It goes on to say in verse uh, thirteen. Then David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." It's interesting. He had a whole lot of opportunities. There were other options of how he could have responded to this, and he could have said, "Take this man and put him to death. Get rid of this guy. I don't want to see him anymore." And I assure you there were a lot of monarchs in in that culture and probably a lot of them today around our world that that would happen. That's what they would do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Nobody tells me that. I'm going to do what I want to do. If you don't like it, then you can get out. And we're going to put you to death. And he had the power to do that. But instead, David says, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against my God his anger was turned to grief and remorse his fiery responses now all of a sudden turned to meekness and his world of greatness everything around him in his heart and mind suddenly collapsed and crumbled what's gonna happen is he gonna lose the throne What's gonna happen to this guy? He has just violated everything you can imagine. He saw himself for who he really was. He's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's a murderer. But, I'm gonna suggest, and, and this is never fun and never good, but that confrontation might have been a positive relief for David. He was carrying that burden all that long, almost a full year living with this. And now God is willing to take away his sin. Verse 14 says, but because, well, Nathan says in the middle of 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. God pronounces that verdict. God's going to take away the sin and you've been confronted and you've been embarrassed and you're an embarrassment of the cause of God but I'm going to take away the sin. God could have easily sent an army in to defeat the Israelites. Could have done that. Take David out, get him off the throne. Or God could have sent a very severe affliction. He could have been hit with an illness that would have killed him. God could have given him the death penalty. Leviticus 20, verse 10, or 24, verse 17, either of those talk about how he deserved to be put to death, David did, for what he said and what he had done. But instead, he sends a prophet to him, Nathan. Instead, he decides to show grace to him. And he reminds David, of the fact that God has tender mercies for him. David had to face the truth, but once he faced the truth and he confronted it in his own heart and mind, God was gracious to him. David could have easily reaped the harvest of sorrow, but instead, there was immediate forgiveness. Instead, there was immediate cleansing, and instead, there was immediate restoration to fellowship with God although the consequences of sins still remained. They remained for the rest of David's life. He faced problems as a result. In fact, there's two major consequences that came. One was the child will die. What did he do? It's an innocent victim, but he's going to die as a result of it. The other consequence was David's household was going to experience constant upheaval. How did that work itself out? Well, here's some ideas. David's daughter, Tamar, was raped by her stepbrother, Amnon. And David apparently glossed over that, didn't deal with that. So Absalom, uh, the brother of Tamar, takes it in his own hands and he kills Amnon. But I think through this whole thing, Absalom is really building a resentment toward his father David because of his inactivity with what had happened in the family. So Absalom eventually leads a rebellion against David and is trying to get him overthrown in his kingdom. And Absalom's got a huge army and he's got a lot of followers and he's got people going against David. But in the process, Absalom gets killed. And that really hurts David a lot. And also, David's wives are all violated publicly. And Bathsheba is violated as well. David's glorious reign becomes clouded with unceasing trouble. All that because of one night of pleasure. One night that was... To some may be innocent, but it wasn't. He faces a long, sad tale of consequences. Here's a great lesson for you and I. It's a great lesson for those who think that they can sin and get away with it. There's no way that ever happens for anybody. And if you think you do, that may even be worse than actually being confronted. If you think you can slip through, David learned that the Lord has put away his sin. He had consequences, but he also had forgiveness. So David starts to, um, to react to this. And one of the things he does is for a week, he starts to pray and fast and to grieve and pleading with God, please don't do this. Please don't kill the child. Please don't put this on me. And a week later, the child dies. Even though David's sin was forgiven, he still had the consequences. His child dies. And then David ends his period of mourning. And that was really unusual because of the way they did it in their day. Verses 20 to 23 says, Then David got up, so he found out that the child had died. And David gets up from the ground and he washes and puts on lotions and changes clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. That's not the way they, they mourned in Israel at that time. It would have been the opposite. He would have been throwing um, dust on himself and, and you know just refusing food and comfort. But instead he washes up and says, okay, let's go and eat. And so his servants asked him, verse 21, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child's dead and you get up and eat? And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? I can bring... Can, or can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That is an interesting statement, and for probably the last two or three millenniums, uh, definitely the last two, Christian leaders, pastors have used that text as a, um, a proof text that there's an age of accountability and, and children that uh, are too young to know Christ can get into heaven. I'm one of them and I, and I still feel that way. Um, it is possible that the only thing that David is trying to say is the inevitability of someone who's dead coming back to life because that's not gonna happen but I am going to die. I'm gonna go to the realm of the dead. Uh, it could just mean that. I think that uh, there are reasons to think that children that are under the age of, a, of whatever God determines for that child is in a time of accountability, I think those children are received under God's mercy and can come in and be with him. <clears throat> and then it goes on to say that David comforted Bathsheba. And as a result of all that, uh, they end up having another son and his name is Solomon. <clears throat> it's important to remember that the child of God who sins is not gonna have a pleasant life. Psalm 32 is very clear on that. If you know Christ as your savior, but you live in aggressive active sin, you're gonna have some pretty miserable days. If anybody can sin and it doesn't bother them, then they're, they've got a lot of reason to question whether or not they really are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said this, um, though God may suffer his people to fall into sin, and that happens, we all have sinned, he will not suffer his people to lie still in sin. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good picture. If, if we, um, we all sin, we all trip up sometime But God is not going to allow you. He is going to convict you like crazy. If you're a follower of Christ, he's not going to allow you to stay entrenched in your sin. God forgave David because of his sincere confession and his contrite heart. This story of David really needs to be put on billboards, flashing red lights, whatever it takes. Last week we looked at Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that end of verse 12 says, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's a warning that everybody in our culture needs to see. If you think you're doing okay, and you think everything's all right, and you think what you do is acceptable, you better be careful. You better be careful because you're setting yourself up for a, a tremendous failure. And Failures when God's involved and and we have those come into our lives, they can be devastating. They could be destructive. You and I need to avoid uh, sensuous living. Uh, We need to avoid covering up whatever sin that we do have. We need to acknowledge sin immediately. The best course for you and I, if we do violate what God wants us to do is to confess it to him as soon as possible. Otherwise, if we don't, it's going to grow and grow and grow. So in this example of everything that David had just gone through, we see a couple things about God. We see his holiness, showing a hatred for sin and bringing the guilty person to repent and to confess. God gives us a way of escape when we just look to him We see his righteousness by chastising him. That means disciplining him. I remember when I was in high school, my high school coach, I think I've told this story once before, but it was a long time ago, you won't remember it. But uh, my high school coach, who is probably the greatest soccer coach and also the greatest soccer player ever from the United States, Walter Barr. But I remember my senior year I was captain and um, And before practice one day, he took me aside and he was telling me that he was disappointed in what he saw in my performance on the field. He was really disappointed and and he wanted me to do better uh, or else he wasn't gonna start me anymore. It's like, I'm the captain, you're not gonna start me? And that that was a wake up. That practice, I can remember every minute of that practice, I killed myself in that practice And everything I did went absolutely wrong. Everything went wrong. Even to the point, and uh, I know Dustin and some of you will remember, we were doing a dry run. And Coach Barr was putting the ball in play. And I was running to my position. And I was about 10 yards away from him. And he nailed that ball and hit me right in the face, put my feet up, and put me down on the ground. And I had tears coming, but it wasn't because of pain. I was so frustrated what was going on. When we were done the drills and stuff, Um, he took me aside again and he said, I need to explain something to you. He said, I am disciplining you, I am on you because I believe in you. He said, if I didn't believe in you, I would give up on you and leave you alone. He said, but I believe in who you are and what you're doing and I think you are the right guy, but I'm staying on you, I'm holding you accountable. I, I look back on that in my life many, many times And I really think I learned more about my God through that encounter than most anything else I've ever experienced since then. It was such a a great experience. God disciplines you and I because he hasn't given up on us because he believes in us and he cares about us and so he wants us to continue to do what is right and that shows his righteousness to us. But God also shows his mercy in leading a backslidden sinner to forsake his sin and to find pardon. Psalm 85, I think sums that whole thing up. His love or mercy and his faithfulness, those two traits meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. God takes us through things, and as we repent and do the right stuff, then his mercy and his love and his tenderness toward us brings us back into a place of pardon and forgiveness and he strengthens us and they like kiss each other. They they work together to keep us with God. Maybe today you're somebody who needs to find mercy. Maybe there's something in your life, it could be that one thing that just has a grip on you and you need to find your mercy. Maybe today you're here and you're somebody who has experienced that mercy from God and you just need to keep giving him praise for that. That is all good. Let's go to prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your love, your mercy. It's never ending and you are so powerful in our lives. You direct us and we just thank you for it. Lord, we know that Uh, We fail time and time again. And we know how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is. To you especially. But we're so thankful for the cleansing that we have and the forgiveness we have when we, through remorse and grief and sadness, confront our sin, confess it to you, because there's pardon at the foot of the cross. Thank you so much for loving us. Jesus, thank you for going to that cross and paying for our sins. Thank you for raising from the dead so that we would have victory today and forever. We just thank you for that. Keep us close to you. Keep us in the hollow of your hand and continue to work in our lives so that our lives will bring honor and glory to Jesus the Savior. We ask it in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.